Welcome to the Esoteric Buffet Podcast, where we talk about all things strange and unusual. If it's geeky or freaky, then we'll talk about it. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can check us out uh, online at esotericbuffet.blogspot.com. You can check out my personal artwork at joebadon.blogspot.com. Check out my music at thebandthatwouldndie.bandcamp.com and if you want to email the show you can email me at sunburnt s-o-n-b-u-r-n-t 77 at gmail.com well on this episode uh, I will talk with musician Nate Allen and we'll talk about his band Destroy Nate Allen and about his latest album entitled Take Out the Trash we'll also have Weird Alien News We'll have music from Destroy Nate Allen, also music from Bjork, Gulag, uh, Rikiro Manabe, and Soul Junk. At the end of the show, we'll listen to a little clip from an Orson Welles interview where he talks about psychic cold readings. First up is Radio Esoterica. first song on the spinner comes from Bjork. The song is entitled Hollow. Enjoy.
you just heard composer Rikiro Manabe, I'm sure I'm totally screwing up his name, with his composition entitled Godzilla vs. Gigan and Megalon from the Godzilla vs. Megalon soundtrack. Next up is the song Vorkuta from the band Gulag. Enjoy. Sequitors, highly irregular, speaking in tongues. 
You just heard the song Sarpodal from the band Soul Junk. That's it for Radio Esoterica. Next up is Weird News. This first piece of weird news comes from aliens-ufo. I'm sorry, alien-ufo-sightings.com. The headline reads, U.S. soldier claims he has spent 17 years battling aliens on Mars. A former U.S. Marine has claimed he spent 17 years of his career on Mars. The ex-naval infantryman, who uses the pseudonym Captain K, says he was posted on the, on the Red Planet to protect five human colonies from indigenous Martian life forms. He claims that he spent nearly three years serving in a secret space fleet run by a multinational organization called the Earth Defense Force, which recruits military personnel from countries including the US, Russia, and China. Captain K's testimony reveals that the main human colony on Mars is called Ares Prime, which is located inside a crater. Ares Prime serves as the headquarters of the Martian Colony Corporation. Uh, according to Captain K, the air is breathable on the surface of Mars and the temperature could be warm at times. In testimony released to Exo News TV, Captain K said he was trained to fly three different types of space fighters and three bombers. He added that training took place on the secret moon base called Lunar Operations Command, Saturn's Moon Titan, and in deep space. Captain K says he retired after a 20-year tour of duty, describing a retirement ceremony on the moon, which he claims was presided over by VIPs, including ex-Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld. After serving 17 years of a 20-year uh, tour of duty. Events changed dramatically when virtually all combat personnel from the Martian Defense Force were asked to receive an extraterrestrial artifact from a cave sacred to the indigenous reptilians. Captain K described how over 1,000 men and women were killed in a subsequent battle and only 28 of his colleagues, including himself, survived. He claims that there are two indigenous species on Mars, both of which are highly intelligent, 
One of these was a reptilian species that was very aggressive in defending their territory. The other was an insectoid species that was equally capable of protecting its territory. He said that indigenous Martians are not particularly interested in expanding their territory, only maintaining it. Captain K said that as long as Mars Defense Force and Mars Colony Corporation did not encroach on the territory of the indigenous Martians, there would be a stable relations. So there you go. That's uh, from alienufosightings.com. You can go over and check that out. You can email me and tell me what you think about that article uh, over at sunburnt77 at gmail.com. This next piece of weird news comes from gizmodo.com. The headline reads, Apollo astronaut says UFOs came to prevent nuclear war. The sixth man to walk on the face of the moon says that pacifist aliens, visitors, tried to create world peace by disabling missiles dur during Cold War weapons tests. Edgar Mitchell, who walked on the moon during the Apollo 14 mission in 1971, told Mirror Online in a recent interview that he believes the UFO, UFOs reported around military bases during the Cold War were on a mission to prevent a nuclear war between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. My own experience talking to people has made it clear that ETs had been attempting to keep us from going to war and help create peace on Earth, he told Mirror Online in a recent interview. He added, I spoke to many Air Force officers who worked at the silos during the Cold War, and they told me that UFOs were frequently seen overhead and often disabled missiles. Other officers from bases on the Pacific coast told me their test missiles were frequently shot down by alien spacecraft. There was a lot of activity going on those days. Mitchell has been out, an outspoken believer in extraterrestrial visitors to Earth since his return from the moon in 1971. He grew up in New Mexico, not far from Roswell, on the White Sands Missile or the White Sands Missile Range, where the nuclear test of nuclear bombs were tested. White Sands was a testing ground for nu uh, for atomic weapons, and that's what the extraterrestrials were interested in. They wanted to know about our military capabilities, said Mitchell. You can read that article over at gizmodo.com. You can email me about it. Tell me what you think about it over at sunburnt77 at gmail.com. All right, guys, next up, we'll be talking with musician Nate Allen and his band, Destroy Nate Allen. We'll be talking about his music, his influences, his life on tour, and much more. But first, let's hear a song from Destroy Nate Allen. Here's his song entitled Death is Overrated. This is off of his latest album, Take Out the Trash. Enjoy. Walked downtown to the grocery store Offered me a coffee if I needed some more I said no thanks, I've already had enough But thanks for your hospitality Thanks for your hospitality Life is complicated And death is overrated And I'm just feeling jaded I just need some rest
walked a few blocks and then I turned around. Kids were making all of those lemonade sounds. I pulled out a quarter and I bought a cup and said, Thanks for your hospitality. Thanks for your hospitality. Life is complicated and death is overrated. Everybody, uh, welcome Nate Allen of the band Destroy Nate Allen. Is that right? Correct. That's that's me. <laughs> I'm not mispronouncing anything. That's a pretty straightforward name. <laughs> nice. Well, welcome. Um, Thank you. Why don't you give us like a quick synopsis of maybe like how long you've been around and uh like what style of music you are, just kind of like if you ran into somebody you don't know and you kind of explained what you did. Why don't you do that real quick? Well, in in that case, I say Destroy Nate Allen plays interactive sing-along folk punk. Nice. Uh, we've we've been around it's nine years right now. Uh, next year will be ten. About I, I like counting things, so it's about nine hundred and fifteen shows. Wow. Jeez, so. Pete, that's, that's a lot of and shows, that, man. Yeah, it's a lot of shows. <laughs> for, for better or worse, there's been a lot of it. So um, that, that's the main thing uh, that I've been doing, I guess, since 2006. Cool. So who else is in your band? Destroying It Out is a duo with my wife, Tessa. Cool. So, so I wanted to ask about that. I, I noticed I was... I wasn't sure if that was your wife or not because I noticed, you know, you're a duo and you're with a, a female. And I was wondering, you all obviously tour a lot, right? Or is it just kind of like local playing or do you actually do a lot no, of touring? No, we've toured a lot. I mean, I think we've done four tours of at least four months, maybe six months. It's It's been, there's been some long ones in there. Wow. Yeah, usually bands are just a couple months, three months yeah. usually mainly, right? Well, I, I don't know. Like I've we've I think I've only done like one tour that that was that length. Very few. <laughs> I mean, normally the tours were like six months or four months, and wow. it, it was yeah. And so I mean, I kind of almost burned us out. So that's we're trying to recalibrate. And now I've been doing like a week or two, but. Because my touring paradigm is so like screwed up, I just say that we're going on a trip. Um, <laughs> it's not really a tour unless it's like months in my mind for some reason. Right. It's a little. It's a little mini vacation. 
festival. Yeah, it's a talk. weekend, you know. Just going out of town for a few days. Well, I wanted to ask you about this because, um, you know, I'm an artist and I, I do music as well, but mainly art. And we're kind of just starting to line up where we're going to start, you know, uh, going out a lot more out to conventions and that sort of thing. Me and my wife. And, um, cool. and I noticed, you know, it's you and your wife. And I, I was uh, curious to like, how has that affected your relationship? Do you feel like it's made you closer or has it made it hard at times? I think both. I, overall, it's definitely a net gain. I think right. we've we've had a blast, and we really we really like hanging out. So, I think we've talked to people and realized that we've spent more time in say our seven years together than they've spent over twenty or thirty. So, I mean, I think that that's totally worth it. I mean, unfortunately, Tessa is subject to my like non-stop going sometimes <laughs> i mean it at my default i definitely can be a workaholic right and so that you know is is good for going on tour and putting out albums but it's bad for you know mental health and stability oh my gosh yeah i totally so, i totally understand but you but since you are an independent artist um it's kind of the only way you can be right yeah i mean we don't I mean, we just sell records out of the back of the van. I mean, kind of within the story, but that's really like how how we've always done it. So it's like, oh, album comes out, you get on tour, and you go on tour for a long time until you have to do something else. Right. Well, I mean, obviously, you don't have a day job then. I, I do. I build websites right now. Okay. And Tess is actually a tax professional, so. Wow. We do those things between tours, and I mean. The long story short, I mean, since I started touring, I went back to school and got a business degree, and wow, and she became a tax preparer. So we've we've kind of had this this very busy musical life, and then very kind of like growing, I guess, professional life in a traditional sense. So yeah, which is interesting because you uh, you kind of don't have any time off, really, right? Do you try to take Not really. time off? I'm trying to learn how to. <laughs> I mean, right up to 2012, there was really no time off. Right. I'd go to school, maybe 20 credits, and then the day class was out. Like, I even skipped my college graduation just to go on tour because I was like, ah, I'll do something else later. That's more exciting. So um, it's just kind of the, the nonstop. And, I mean, a lot of that was the workaholic tendency coming through. Right. Because if you tour as an independent band, you know that, like, or an artist that's – Playing one extra show is not going to do a whole lot for your career arc, right. um, unless it's like a randomly magical night. So, I mean, at, at some points it was harder for me to give us a day off than than it was. I mean, sorry, it was harder for me to not book a show than to give us a day off. Right. So we have this internal like this discussion where it's like Tessa would say, "Hey, can we have a day off?" And I'd say, "I don't know how." <laughs> and so I'd book some crappy show in you know whatever state you want to pick. Uh, instead of just saying, okay, yeah, let's go have a day off with some friends somewhere. Right. Oh, my so, gosh. I totally understand. You know, um, you, when I started doing artwork full-time, uh, you know, it was just, like, all the time. And my wife finally said, you know, we need to take one day off a week. We have to, you know. 
you just it just starts becoming mind numbing, you know. Yeah. Which I totally feel you. I've I've been there on plenty of occasions, especially when it hinges on paying bills or not. Totally. You know. Um, you know, uh, it's interesting. You've toured so much. You've got to have some interesting tour experiences. For sure. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, our tours, I think we're probably, I mean, they're still happening, but they'd be unique in the respect that it's, it's pretty much been Tessa and I for most of them. And so, you know, the typical touring band is, you know, a few dudes in a van creating havoc, and here we are, a married couple um, okay. playing all ages shows around the country. Right. And it's a, it's a little different. Sure. <laughs> Start. So, I always just say pick a state and I'll figure out a story. That's, right. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, okay. Do you, I, I'm down in New Orleans. I'm right out, outside of New Orleans. I don't know how much Louisiana you you've toured. Well, you know, I played, I've played in New Orleans a handful of times. But my my most, like my favorite New Orleans story is in New Iberia, Louisiana. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I didn't know that existed until my first tour. <laughs> Nice. At that point, I was just jumping on any show I could get. Yeah, that's not a very big place. No, I ended up at some Legion Hall in in New Iberia, (laughs) and it was it was a bizarre show. Oh my gosh! Uh, I think the most notable factor was there was a a punk band playing, and (laughs) and then this this guy got up there, and he was just like slaying on guitar. And I realized, like, the whole show, which was pretty well attended, had completely emptied out. And it's because he was black. Oh, and it wow. Just, it was like, whoa, what the heck am I, like, I just felt like I'd stepped into, like, another, like, world. Wow. Because, it, I mean, it was just me and, like, two other people watching this guy completely blow everybody else on the show away. And, <laughs> but then there was an all-ages show, which is, which is cool, except for... All the kids were extremely sober, and all the adult chaperones were extremely drunk. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so at one point, this guy, which this is, I mean, ties back into the guitar story, but he had a big old swastika on his arm, and he was so drunk as one of the chaperones that he was wandering into the library to pee. <laughs> and it was just like, this is just like, I'm in an upside-down world at every level. Like, the kids are supposed to be the wild ones, the adults are supposed to be responsible, and the kids are completely you know, driving their parents home tonight. So it was just a bizarre night. That's That was so. in Louisiana as well? The same place? Yeah, it was all in that new Liberia show. <laughs> How absolutely odd. Yeah, it was just very, just different, I don't know. <laughs> oh, you know, um, it's just so interesting, the, the places that you end up playing, because you're just kind of stepping into places that you you know, you um, sign up for, and they're thousands of miles away. You've never seen the place before. And so it's really strange. It's interesting because you get to see all the different facets of America. And you've you've played over 900 times. So, I mean, it's like you could probably write a book on your travels at this point. Oh, definitely. I I keep, I I really want to start documenting it better. I have I have massive lists that help me a lot, but I've started losing a few of the details, and so I want to try to write it all out before it's some of it starts to slip away. Yeah, that would make an, an awesome book. 
Okay, so the, here's a little side tidbit. You had emailed me uh, because of the, a lot of the music that I've been playing on my podcast. thought this would be cool if we hooked up. And funny thing is, is I discovered you on MySpace way, oh, back, fun. way back in the day. I was a youth pastor um, and always looking for interesting Christian music. And I found you, and, um, and you know, uh, you, uh, I dug it, man. I totally was into it. It must have been when you were just starting out, maybe first or second album. And Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Probably the first two were around in the MySpace era, so yeah. that makes sense. So I'm wondering, um, you know, I've always dug your stuff, and I thought it was so cool that you emailed me out of the blue. And I thought, man, this is serendipitous. I, I think it's it would awesome. be great for you to, to come on. And I was wondering, like, does faith still play a role in your music? Uh, for sure. I mean, yeah. we. I mean, I don't. I guess because of the punk rock thing, I don't really play it up too often, uh, just because we're a, just a general punk band. But yeah, yeah we're we're definitely both Christians, and uh, I guess moving forward in that way. Right. And so really been Kansas city was a, a move we made a couple of years ago to really reshuffle. And so that I could slow down and start working on some of my core issues that had been kind of undermining me in a lot of ways. Right. Um, specifically like internally, but also in areas of faith. I mean, one of the things that I learned since I moved here was I was a victim of a lot of spiritual abuse. Yeah. And so there's a whole level of like fear that I was operating out of. Yeah. Uh, that I mean, I didn't even know until like a, probably a year and a half ago. But uh, yeah, I mean, faith is definitely a huge thing. I think we. Uh, I, I don't think I'd be playing music if it if it wasn't for like God, pretty much. Yeah. I was I was never one of those guys that wanted to be a a rock and roller. <laughs> I just uh, kept going on adventures, and I started writing songs along the way, and then. Uh, yeah, that's kind of how we how this whole thing started. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Well, speaking of that, like speaking of inspiration, what are like your musical influences? Well, let's see. I hmm. so, how about <laughs> give me like maybe top three? Top three. <laughs> okay. While while you're thinking of it, you know, listening <laughs> to your new album. Um, I never really noticed, but your voice sounds almost exactly like Havelina. Oh, fun. And uh, I thought I just got such a kick out of that because you know, that's probably one of my favorite bands of all time. Yeah, actually, time. I was just talking to my friend Tyler, who's in the band Insomniac Folklore, mm-hmm. and uh, we were doing recording an interview, and we just both geeked out about Havelina, like a lot of it. Um, I'd say they're probably the biggest influence as far as they inserted a lot of diversity into my punk rock paradigm. Yeah. It's very much a, you know, I like pop punk. It's it's kind of in my blood. Right. And so, like, a Green Day would definitely be number one. Yeah. And then I just kind of jumped on the punk rock train and, and kept it going for years. Probably until about the time I ran to Havelina. Right. Um, I think Havelina and then probably Johnny Cash right after that. Like, both... Mm opened up my my world that there could be more yeah 
and I'm not the fastest guitar player, so I was always a little limited just playing straightforward punk rock. Right. And so it was like, oh, there's all these other things. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think Havelina, Social Distortion, mm-hmm. probably Green Day would be, you know, all in the top ten. Yeah. I think prob- probably in two- throughout 2004, so I was trying to write songs and I was really failing. And I kept trying to, like, write these complicated pieces of music, <laughs> which is, you know, now is real funny. But at the time, I was just trying to, you know, find my voice. Right. And I made a list of my top ten bands, and every one of them was a three-chord songwriter. Right. Um, without a band, it was like, the, that was the constant. So I was like, oh, maybe I'm messing up that I'm using a fourth chord. <laughs> and <laughs> when I dropped that chord, it, like, my whole life shifted. Nice. And so, Three chords and the truth, right? Yeah. But, you know, the cool thing about Havelina is that they were running with the punk rock scene, but they weren't doing punk rock music. Totally. And um, it was just they had the spirit of punk rock. And I think that's the, the greatest thing about punk rock is that there's like a spirit to punk rock that you can latch on to and maybe not even play punk rock music. Yeah, um, and I see that like I'm a big fan of free jazz, and there's this spirit of free jazz that's just freedom, and um, you can latch onto that and kind of like run with the free jazz crowd. And with punk music, there's like this spirit of I'm gonna do whatever the hell I want. Yeah, and um, even if I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> And um, and you can run with that and and fall right into the punk rock crowd. So, yeah, I totally dig it, man. I totally feel it. It's definitely your music definitely has the punk rock sen- sensibilities and all that. Also, like the lo-fi um, yeah. sensibilities, which are are core, um, honestly, to music that feels for me. Yeah, it, for it, sure. Yeah, you know, like. Tom Waits is a perfect example. You, if you give him a good recording, I, I'd hate to listen to it. But you give that <laughs> nasty recording that he does, and it, yeah. it just brings out emotion, you know. And so, I, your live, yeah. your lo-fi, I guess that's on purpose, correct? Yeah. Well, partially. Right. <laughs> I think I think there's the lo-fi in that I love. You know, old rock, rock and roll records that have that kind of rough, rough around the edges feel where you can, you know, yes, kind of hear the vocal cords bulging. Right. But then there's also the aspect of just being an independent musician where sometimes the record's made in the basement. And, you know, I've, I've, I've taken, even with my first album, I went and bought a bunch of condenser mics and set aside a week at home to learn how to make this, this thing called music. Right. And then my roommates, like at the time, they just kept like dropping dishes right when I'd get a good take, and it would just blow out the record. And so, I literally like took the condensers back, grabbed these five dollar mics that I uh, that I've had since throwing hardcore shows, and just put them in a closet and started recording. Nice. And uh, it was like kind of like the lo-fi thing, but it's also like oh, I can avoid my roommates if I do that, and and I have to do this. So, right. Nice. So it's, it's, a mix of both, I think. Right. Well, that'll that leads me to my next question as far as recording equipment. I always like to ask if it's an artist, what kind of 
you know, what kind of uh, software he uses or, you know, what kind of equipment he uses and, you know, a writer, whatever. So, like, as far as being a musician, what kind of recording equipment do you, do you use? Well, it's a, it's a mix of, like, if we're in a studio, then I use whatever they have. Sure. If I'm at home, I have this old Korg D888 board mm-hmm. that I bought the first record that still helps a lot. And um, then I just use whatever mics I have around. Right. Every once in a while, I'll borrow, you know, somebody's nice mic. But oftentimes, it's my, you know, knockoff 58s and, and uh, you know, the collection of things I have in boxes around here. <laughs> nice. So, awesome. I, like, will make a record that I'm like, oh, I'm really happy with how this sounds. And, you know, we really take, you know, the full band approach. Like, the new record is, like, the full band approach. Right. But then I'm like, oh, man, that really leaves me wanting to just, like, sit at home with a couple mics in a quiet room and make something else. So kind of go back and forth. Yeah, I did notice um, this new album is definitely, uh, you know, you going, you know, more high-fi, high-quality to Thank your you. recording. I mean, obviously you did it in a studio for this one, right? We actually did it. In, uh, oh, really? The, the whole thing, uh, minus the mixing and the mastering, was just in the basement of the house I lived in. So I was, I'm really happy with how it sounds specifically because yeah. we were just like, we were able to get a lot of the tones that I like a lot, right? Uh, which is kind of my eternal thing is like, I don't like high, like the highest fidelity records, but I like certain tones a lot mm-hmm. and like with drums and guitar on the record, I'm like, Oh, these sound how I want them to sound. I don't know if they sound how like, you know, somebody would make them in a really nice studio, but they sound how I want them to sound in my head. So yeah. Very nice. Yeah, I really like the way it sounded for sure. Um, as far as your albums are, are you ma- mainly self-published, or do you have a record company you go through? I do it myself. Right. So, I think we've I've self-released everything but one album. Mm-hmm. I this album I've got the distribution on it, mm-hmm. and. Like so, it'll it'll be in record stores September eighteenth actually, which for me is the first. Uh, we've done a lot of albums, but never never crossed that bridge. Nice. So you've worked mm-hmm. outside of the system mainly, and is that a conscious decision? No, I mean it's it's just like you know you work with what you what you have, and so right. I'd never had like the right pieces in play. You know, maybe like one step out of you know away from the, the person that would make that the, the label happen or, mm-hmm. or, you know, the distro or whatever. We've had them like on, di- on iTunes and that sort of stuff, but sure. But that's, that's super easy. Right. It's, it's a very different thing than, yeah, you know, absolutely. a 10 page record contract about distribution and, and all that sort of stuff. So, well, and I know, um, from doing music and doing art as would like, cause I do a lot of comic book art and, um, it's like a full-time job in itself just to, to get publishers, to get labels, to do that side of it. It's like totally. it's a whole full-time job in itself. And you can either be making music, making art, and doing it and putting it out there yourself, or you can be making a little bit of music and art and spending the rest of your time like trying to get on a label, you know? Yeah. 
Well, I mean, part of this this album I wrote, Take Out the Trash, in 2013. Mm-hmm. And it's been a couple of years because I did the, like, shop it to labels and actually got a lot of great feedback, but nobody had an open calendar. Right. Uh, so I was like, oh, I guess I'm going to kickstart it. And then that takes some months, and then the distro deal came up later in the game. So it's like all, all of the, the time pieces with just trying to be a little more logistically wise. Uh, right. It's a totally different deal than, oh, look, I made an album. I'm going to burn a thousand copies and send them to me halfway through tour. <laughs> right. Which I've definitely done that a couple times. Nice. Uh, trying well, to be smarter about it. <laughs> good. Uh, um, what was I going to say? Oh, so you you playing so many gigs. Do you feel like, you know, because there's always this idea with musicians that I'm going to play that gig where that record label dude will be at the show and he'll see me. You know what I'm saying? And do you feel like that's kind of a myth? No, it's, I don't think it's a myth. I think, I mean, because we've had friends that have, have had that happen to them. Right. Like one one night one person and then you know their life is different right uh, I mean I have some friends that I hung out with this week that after signing to you know his label life in the last year is completely different than it had been the last 10 years of playing music yeah uh, so I think that can happen for us I think we're we're just odd enough and, <laughs> and you know probably also like a little self-sufficient in, in a good and bad way Right. Because, I mean, people are like, oh, Nate already puts out his own albums. He already, you know, will go on tour for 100 days and whatnot. And in some ways, I'd love to really be able to, you know, hand off some of the stuff or or, or work with other people because I really love working with other people. But it's just never happened. So sure. I just, I mean, if I guess songs are in me, so I try to get them out there. Sure. And, and, uh, and the, the cho- decision's either wait for some label or go on tour i just get in the van right um it's funny um thinking about you know you're such a hard-working musician and artist which is kind of can be hard to come by and um you know i've been for me i wanted to ask you this question but i need to say this first for me you know doing artwork um I've been doing artwork for since about 2008, um, trying to get published, you know, try, as far as with comic book companies and stuff. And so it's it's been just this year that I'm, you know, publishers are recognizing me and stuff. And it's funny because, you know, if it was in 2008, 2009, I'd be jumping up and down just like, oh, my gosh, yeah. <laughs> you know, somebody's paying attention. But now it's just like, okay, whatever. You know, I've got work to do. Like, it's cool. Thanks for noticing me. Um, and so it's it's funny because I kind of feel, like, jaded in a way. You know, like, you know, finally you're paying attention to me. That's cool. You know, um, and so it's not as magical as it maybe was, would have been earlier in my career. Yeah. And do you kind of feel the same way as far as now you're finally getting picked up by a label? Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I, I think I got into the game late. Right. So I didn't tour till I was 24. Right. And 
I was before that I was a music like I ran a like a nonprofit booking shows and booking agent and stuff. So I was super into the music business side of stuff. Right. And I mean and then it's just been touring for years because I already knew like enough of the basics to, to do that. And and so I'm like now I'm like, oh cool, yeah, we'd love to work together if that makes sense. But I mean fortunately I think I'm slowing down a bit so it's probably easier to catch me. Because uh, before I was in such a trying to earn my way, I guess you could say. Right. That that I think it was probably like if I would have slowed down, I can look back and say, oh man, things would have been different on quite a few levels if I would have slowed down. Sure. Um, so I I actually look at like our you know approaching thousand tour dates as like as both a piece of like honor, but also like oh man, if I would have been smarter, I probably would have been closer to like seven hundred tour dates and been healthier to be around so 700 is still magnanimous yeah but it's it's it would have had days off or something sure. so basically like if you were, were able to go back in time and talk yeah. to yourself when you first started would that be maybe the best part piece of advice you, what kind of advice would you give yourself uh yeah i mean i think slowing down is huge um right I mean, I, I think in some ways, just kind of working in an unknown deficit with, with the workaholic piece, I didn't really get that. Right. I mean, I think it's hard to convince most 24-year-olds that there may be a workaholic. Uh, and I was, you know, in that, in that game. So I, I think, yeah, just when I look back, I'm like, oh, man, there's things I would have changed. And I, I guess we, everybody has things they would have changed. Right. But I can trace some of those changes to... If I just would have known to take a bit more time, a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. then I would have done some things quite a bit different. Right. And that's the advice I'd give my younger self. So, <laughs> I mean, I might go back. There's part of me that wants to go back and re-record some old songs that are way out of print, just like with the changes that I'd put in them now. Like, oh, that one word was really stupid. <laughs> So I might do that since I can record at home whenever I want to. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, man. Well, okay, so how can people find you online? You can go to IamNateAllen.com, DestroyNateAllen.com. There's several dot-coms. <laughs> Twitters, the Facebooks, all that sort of stuff. I'm, I'm all over that. Cool. Are you still on MySpace as well? <laughs> You know, I still do have a MySpace. Nice. You're you're actually the second person that that's brought that up in the last few weeks. <laughs> that's uh, some awesome. some kid. Um, I, he probably was he probably was a kid when he saw this, but he was not a kid anymore. I was like, oh, I think I heard about your band on MySpace. <laughs> that's awesome. And, uh, you know, it's always like when it's in the same line of destroying Alan as a well-established DIY band which is like code word for they've been around forever and they're not 17. Um, so nice. Yeah. yeah. I, I just pulled up our MySpace. We're still there. Nice. Got a 5,000 people I'm connected to on there and I haven't logged in in a while. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny as I Googled you and uh, I just Googled Nate Allen and got yeah. some like football player or something. Oh Yeah. So, so I, you, I really go ahead. like Googling myself for that sort of thing. Um, 
specifically because there is a football player now. Back when I started, there wasn't a football player named Nate Allen. Right. There was a British Nate Allen who wanted to get to the top of the Google rankings. <laughs> nice. He couldn't quite climb over me because I, you know, had all these websites and stuff. Right. He, he would blog about how much he wanted to destroy me because I was more popular on the internet. What? No, for real? For real. We kind of had this like <laughs> small internet rivalry. Nice. And, uh, it's actually, when I look back on Destroying It Allen, the band name actually came about because of a website. Right. I, I was like looking for nateallen.com and somebody owned it. And so I thought up Destroying It Allen as a joke. Uh, and then that turned into the band name. So it was, it was very much like birthed in the digital age. <laughs> nice. Awesome. Well, um, I'd like to play a song. Um, so off maybe off your new album, right? Yeah, that would be great. Cool. Which song would you like me to play? And West Side Blues is a good one. Cool. Tell me about it. Where 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 the inspiration for the song come from? Well, I was in some like discussion groups in Portland uh, with our church that was. M- not for the specific focus of discussions about racism, but I mean, that was kind of like a topic that came up a lot because it was a really diverse group um, ethnically. Right. And as they started processing kind of their stories, I started kind of processing the way that I would, which is in song. And so they tell a story and I went home and wrote that song one week and then brought it back to the group the next week. And it's like, this is what I thought. Nice. And, uh, that's that's where that came from. So there was a little bit of a, a call and response there with some songs on the album, and uh, kind of touching at least some of the some topics that I wouldn't necessarily address uh, on past albums. So I think this one's one of my favorites, though. Very cool. West Side Blues, right? Uh, yes, West Side Blues. Cool. Let's listen to that. West Side Blues are far from the Southern Hills. The Northwest winds are coming and give me chills. When the sun it shines, when the sun it shines, when the sun it shines for all the wrong reasons, for all the wrong reasons. Can there be equality when everybody I know is just like me? Can we learn to see things through new eyes? And if there still is condemnation and segregation in the social station, can we put our differences aside? When the sun it shines, when the sun it shines, when the sun it shines for all the wrong reasons, for all the wrong reasons. And all my friends want to move to The worst city west of the Mississippi I don't know Well, I don't know And all my friends want to move to The worst city west of the Mississippi Now I know Now I know Now I know Context clues and social views Gunfighting on the evening news Reaching out until I finally see the light Context clues and social views 
Young fighting on the evening news Preaching out until I finally see the light got those drums and those guitars <laughs> um, okay so I have one last question for you um, and I ask this with most of my guests so I might be throwing you a curveball here but um, do you have any personal ghost encounters alien encounters Bigfoot sightings near death experiences or spiritual encounters that you'd like to share with the listeners hmm That's a kind of a broad question. Very, but. yeah, very broad question. Um, most of the phenomena, I would say no. Right. I, I'm from Oregon, so Bigfoot is a, a topic, but uh, I've never seen him. I would say the 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 only thing on on that broad list that I would uh, I would say phenomena is, I mean, I have had a lot of. Uh, moments where I would say were personal interactions with God. Sure. Uh, via either prayer or discussion or, you know, like being on tour and needing a show or, you know, a dollar <laughs> to get somewhere and then having either like somebody send a check in the mail or, or a, you know, donate that has really felt uh, other, I guess you could say, mm -hmm. than, than what would be you know, my own resources and means. Right. And I mean, I've got tons of those stories. Uh, okay, so give me one that you feel like comes to mind that would be a cool one to share. Okay, so I was in India years ago, uh, 2000, circa 2001, and I was over there with, a, with like a missions team. Right. And it hadn't, hadn't rained and in months in this one part of India. And so we did a whole, um, like, we went out and did some skits and talked to the school. And then as I was, like, doing this, um, like, balloon trick, I put a needle through a balloon. Mm -hmm. uh, right when I did that, it started pouring down rain, and then it rained for, like, several days. Wow. And uh, that was a cool, like, oh, whoa, maybe, like, those prayers we said did work. Because yeah. this, this area that was a drought is no longer a drought. And that was right after we'd uh, we'd prayed. So that was a pretty cool moment. Wow, that's really awesome. Those sorts of experiences, man. Missions trips um, can be like really um, central areas of high strange spiritual experiences. Yeah, and uh, well, I mean, go ahead. I think anytime you put yourself out of your comfort zone, uh -huh. you're kind of opening yourself up. Unless you happen to live in a a bizarrely spiritual place. I mean, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Awesome. Well, man, thanks so much for, for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time 
out of you. You sound just extremely busy. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's pretty busy. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so thanks. much, Nate. Go yeah, th thanks for having me on. I yeah, awesome. Appreciate it. All right, say goodbye, Nate. Goodbye, Nate. <laughs> I'm saying goodbye. <laughs> See you guys next time. Bye. All right, guys, thanks for listening to the show. Remember, you can subscribe to us online uh, over at iTunes and leave us a review. You can check us out online at esotericbuffet.blogspot.com. You can also check out my personal artwork at jobadon.blogspot.com. That's J-O-E-B-A-D-O-N.blogspot.com. You can check out my music at thebandthatwouldn'tdie.bandcamp.com. And you can email the show at sunburnt77 at gmail.com. That's S-O-N-B-U-R-N-T-7-7 at gmail.com. I'm going to leave you, leave you with an interview uh, from Orson Welles talking about uh, his experience with cold psychic reading. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. I, I once, uh, you know I'm an, a magician, and uh, uh, I got interested in mind reading and, and fortune telling, fake fortune telling, you know? And I got to know a lot of old fakes who had retired as millionaires, you know? And they told me their secrets, how you do it. They have things that are called cold readings. A cold reading is you warm up the sucker by telling him things that he says, how could he ever know that, you see? You say, you know, between the ages of uh, 13 and 15, you had a, a great change came in your life. But that happens in everybody's life. <laughs> but, but he says, he came in and told me things I already said. You've got a scar on your knee. Everybody fell down and has a scar on their knee. Those are cold have, readings, you see? I have a, now, I have a scar on my knee. How you did do. you know that? Yeah, you <laughs> see? Just something bigger than myself. Yeah. Well, now, the point about this is that you, after they're warmed up, they're amazed by this knee bit and the rest of it. They start telling you. Because you just say, is it sin? You see from their face it is or it isn't. And then you tell it back and they say, how did he do it? You see? So I was bored. I was playing in Kansas City with Catherine Cornell one time. And uh, we didn't have any matinee on Wednesday. So I hired a, a room and put Dr. Swami fortune teller, you know? Two dollar readings. And for uh, the whole day, they came in and I, each one, because I felt guilty about it at the end, I said, I'm not going to take your money, you know, because I couldn't have really taken it. For a whole day, I was a fortune teller, faking. But then there began to happen to me the thing that does happen to fortune tellers, and which is the occupational disease of fraudulence, fortune tellers. And they have a name for it. It's called becoming a shut-eye. And a shut-eye in the argo of these crooks is the fellow who believe, begins to believe himself. You see, and you make these wild guesses. One of them explained to me, he says, supposing you're a night clerk in a hotel, and when you get the job, first of all, a fellow comes in, wants a single room. You look at how good his luggage is, how good are his shoes, and you tell him there's a room in the court, there's no room, or yes, sir, depending on various <laughs> pieces of evidence. He says, you've been a night clerk long enough, you glance and you tell it. You've been a night clerk a little longer and you don't have to look. You've seen it, but you have, the computer in here has made all of those deductions without your being conscious of it. So the mind reader gets so that he, without thinking, does that and then they say it's true. And a woman came in to me at the end of my 
my career as a, as a fraudulent fortune teller, in a bright print dress, and sat down, looking perfectly all right, and I said, you've lost your husband last week. And she burst into tears, she had. And then I quit. <laughs> that was terrible. Yes, it's one of those things, undoubtedly, it's not psychic. Undoubtedly, there was evidence of a tragedy. There was all kinds of things that went into the computer and got processed without me crookedly thinking what I'm going to say to her. And that's how it works, I think. That's fascinating. And, and, you, and you get f sort of f five spooky premonitions a like year. Like that, and then, you know, yes, I do. And I'm sure they're all spooky like that in some kind of funny way. I suppose I looked at Una and said, you know, she's just Una is the, exactly the, the girl that would be happy with, with Charlie, I suppose. And instead of thinking, maybe you'll meet him, I just, what did I lose? I said, you're going to marry him. And she did. <laughs>